We are Rogue Media Sports. Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Coming up on the Pete Souza podcast, Bill Cushatis is a historian, and I love historians. That's what this podcast is about. I could talk to a million people, and they could tell you what you think, but you can talk to very few to tell you, actually, this is what happened. And Bill Cushatis is one of those guys when it comes to the 1993 Phillies. Macho Rowe, Lenny Dykstra, Kurt Schilling, John Cruck, Darren Dalton. Bill has a perspective and an insight that not many people do. Uh, he is a guy that has taken us behind the curtain so many times in pro sports and in history, and he does it again with this book, and uh, he did it in this conversation. Coming up, Bill Cushatis. This series should come down to a 3-2 pitch with two outs in the night. The payoff pitch. He struck him out. And the Philadelphia Phillies have won the National League pennant. Bill. How you doing? Hey, man. How are you? Good. I appreciate you making the time this morning. Are you Are you out in uh, Chester County? Yep, Paoli. Oh, you're in Paoli. The, uh, yeah, the armpit of the main line. <laughs> I I uh I grew up right by right by Villanova. Oh, so yeah, right around the corner. I, I know you're a historian. Uh, yep. Are Are you? And and you cover all kinds of stuff, but are, are you like a sports super fan, or, or are there certain topics you just like to sink your teeth into? Um, I, you know, when I I <laughs> I went and I was doing my PhD at University of Pennsylvania, and I started writing. My field was on Quaker history, and I started you know writing on Quaker history, and you know I found the field was so petty. And, you know, you do anything and get criticized for it. So I just started writing about, um, you know, what I knew, which was baseball. And I found that people were so much more encouraging. So for better and worse, what happened is I just started writing baseball and publishing baseball books. So people consider me because I've done more baseball books than anything, a baseball historian. Well, and Um, look, that's why I appreciate 
you do go beneath the surface and I and I love when you tackle subjects like like the 93 Phillies because it it is so colorful and they yeah. are so colorful but it's deeper than just you know the macho row title there's personalities here uh, there's there's insecurities right there's guys who appear like they're 10 feet tall and bulletproof when really they're just like feared up big, big kids running around dominating their sport what I, and what I love about somebody like you and what this podcast is about is I can go I can go to anybody in, in my in my profession right like working in sports or working on the news and I can find an expert who's going to tell me what they think is going to happen um, right it's 50 50 every time but let's talk to somebody like you about what really did happen guys like you or another author like Jeff Perlman who they just go to work on these these fascinating subjects. What moved you to write this book about the 93 Phillies? You know, I, I think we all fall in and out of love, at least with a sport, uh, with me as baseball over the course of our lives. I mean, I grew up uh, playing it, and that was my first love affair with it. You know, we're all told that, game tells us at a certain point when it has no use for us anymore is players. And that happened to me in college. Um, and then the second love affair happened um, when I had my own kids um, and they started following baseball. But somewhere in between, I found a love baseball. It really stunk. I mean, yeah. after 93, they were terrible. Um, my uh, childhood hero, well, I should say boyhood hero, Mike Schmidt retired in 1989, so there was nothing really there. And, uh, you know, I had a very young nephew who was um, just beginning to be interested in it. And um, I did some Phillies camps with him, um, and he kind of rejuvenated my interest in Phillies. And 93 was his team. I mean, that was the team that he grew up with. So that book you'll see is dedicated to him, Chris Bauman. Um, and it, it was really kind of a rejuvenation, my love affair with the game. And they were a colorful team. Uh, of course, we didn't know at the time about the prevalence of steroids in the sport. We found about that only later, but that's what made them an even more intriguing team to me because, you know, it, it, you can write about a baseball team and do all the stats and now you ha you can, you know, go whole hog with the metrics they have out there, but I'm not really a metrics guy. I like the human stories. Uh, and yeah, although, although, although let me interject, Billy Bean loves your book. Yeah, I know he, um, I was kind of hoping for a better endorsement than he gave me. I don't think he read <laughs> the book, but, um, yeah, um, well, I, I admire him tremendously, and that's why I asked him to do it because he, you know, he came up with the Moneyball concept from watching that World Series. But at any rate, um, you know, I like the bigger topics, and there was a bigger topic in there once the steroid thing came out with the Mitchell Report. And I was writing another book at the same time I was working on this one titled Suicide Squeeze, Taylor Hooten, Rob Garibaldi, and uh, the danger of uh, teenage uh, steroid abuse. Mm. Those were the two kids uh, whose family, they were the two kids. That's who, how we ended up on Capitol Hill. Right, exactly. And I thought that was a much better book than anything I'd ever written. 
and those families opened themselves up to me. Book never went anywhere, but um, you know, as I was, I, I was learning so much more about steroids and what their impact was. So I don't even know if I would have finished Macho Row, um, you know, if it was just them, because I was much more interested in, you know, baseball's unwritten code and the steroid issue. Uh, as I was on 93. And as it turns out, a lot of those guys, they won't talk with me anymore. And A lot of guys on know, the team, and this is after the book, they won't talk to you? Yeah, they won't talk with me. And it's not because of, I think, much of anything I wrote, uh, because, you know, I quoted them. And I actually gave um, every one of them a chance to read the manuscript before I send it in. No one did it. Uh, and the only guy who I think would uh, would still talk to me if he was alive was Darren Bolton. I mean, I knew him the best. Um, but, you know, these other guys, it's kind of like, well, what did you guys expect? I mean, now you guys have children, and maybe you don't like to hear that you weren't heroes. But Cruck came right out and said it. You know, I mean, I think they're a little embarrassed about their career now that, you know, they're family people. They have kids of their own. Um, but what was the most know, explosive I, thing that came out of the book that guys reacted to or, or, or didn't react to as far as they, they won't talk to you anymore because of it? Uh, I, I just don't know. I just don't know. I mean, I know they won't talk with me about it. Uh, and the only thing that I could assume is because, you know, frankly, they had to give up their protracted adolescence since they retired from baseball and they have families of their own. They have kids of their own and, you know, I think they're somewhat of embarrassed about leaving that kind of lifestyle. Uh, but that's my speculation. I don't know. What What uh, was, and we talked about steroids, how much, how prevalent was steroids with this team? Well, we definitely know that the Mitchell Report fingered two players, Lenny Dykstra and Todd Pratt. Uh, there were suspicions about Dave Holland, uh, suspicions about Pete Incavilia because Incavilia played on the Astros at the time. Uh, you know, there were suspicions about them, um, you know, juicing. Uh, but, you know, there were also suspicions about uh, Darren Dalton uh, because he was ripped. Yeah. I mean, he, was, he was, you know, uh, unbelievable. And depending upon what kind of steroid you take, like if you're taking – like Dykstra took, um, DECA, um, because he wanted that, – that's a, a mass muscle builder, and he wanted to put on weight because he wanted power, and he also wanted to be able to last the season. That's one type of steroid. But there are steroids like Winstrol uh, that are lean muscle builders, and a lot of bodybuilders use that. A lot of adolescents use that because they want to look good. They want to look ripped. And, you know, there's suspicions that, that Dalton um, took that. Now, to his credit, when I sat down and interviewed him, I said, hey, you know, Darren, I, I, I got you know, I, I to ask you this question because I, I wouldn't be doing justice to the book and to the readers if I didn't. Um, did you juice? And he said, Bill, I, I respect your position as a writer to ask that question. I think you have to respect my position as a ball player. And he said, um, you know, if you want to say that uh, I was a poster child for steroids, well, I probably took every single kind of drug there were after four or five knee operations. 
Um, but he said, I don't, I don't think, you know, that's as important. What goes into me is not as important as what comes out of me. And that's what I do on the playing field. So, you know, he answered that as I think, frankly, as he possibly could. Uh, and I, I respected that and I appreciated that, you know, you ask these other guys, well, they wouldn't say anything. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the steroids thing to me, uh, Howard Bryant had just come out. In fact, I ran into Howard at the Hall of Fame uh, a couple of days ago. Great writer. And asked that book. But, yeah, he had just come out with Juice when I was working on those books. And uh, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's osmosis or whatever, but um, we have the same interests. Um, one of Bryant's first books was on – uh, the integration of the Boston Red Sox. And I was working at the same time on a book about the integration of the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and then he did this juice thing and I was working on, you know, these two books at the same time. Um, he's an excellent writer, just an excellent writer. Was there anybody um, did you try to get for this book that, that wouldn't talk with you? Uh I wish I didn't get Kurt Schilling. Why? What, 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 what about him? I've, I've, well, he, you just, you've not, you, you've not heard great things about him, right? I mean. He could not stop talking. And, <laughs> and you know, I sent him the manuscript, too, because he was like, you know, Macho Row plus one. He wanted to be part of Macho Row, but he really wasn't. And, you know, he was, he was a, he was a young guy who was just trying to fit in and frankly was a pain in the ass to everybody on Macho Row. And to this day, he's not really greeted all that well in Philadelphia. Um, but what I didn't like about him is, you know, if that manuscript, when I, I send that manuscript, it had, you know, when I do a book, I have like close to 40 pages of endnotes. So everything's documented, yeah. everything. And uh, I, I'll never forget this. I sent it to him. He was, I think, with ESPN at the time. I, I sent it to him. He called me up and said that he got it, and he'd get right back to me. Well, apparently, you know, he got off his shift at ESPN. He stayed up all night into the next day and read the whole book or the manuscript, the whole thing. <laughs> back to me, and he says, I don't know what I was reading. It was like a completely different world. I don't remember any of that stuff that you were saying. And he took issue with every single thing in in the book, particularly things that didn't make him look good. So, you know, I, I basically said, well, Kurt, um, you know, I have end notes. This is what you said at the time. This is what your teammates said about you. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sorry, I have to respectfully disagree with your interpretation. It's very different than, in my opinion, what happened. Um, so, you know, but at least he got back to me and he, he, he took the main. He actually did. Re- he actually did read it, right? Oh, he read it. Yeah. He read it. I mean, frankly, he had, I mean, he told me he had the whole thing. Uh, I mean, I was on the phone with him for an hour and a half. He's just looking um, at it on his bed, right? Like after reading the whole thing? Correcting it. I mean, just quote unquote, correcting it. What did guys say um, about him um, that, that, that he was so bothered by? One of the things that he was, 
bothered by was that he wasn't part of that crew and that guy said, you know, he, he was always trying to fit in, trying to fit in. And, um, you know, the, uh, that he was a wannabe. Uh, and then he did things that rubbed people the wrong way. Like whenever Mitch Williams went out, um, on the mound to, to try to save a game that he was pitching, um, Schilling would just sit in the dugout with a towel around his head, and he was asked why. He says, "I can't watch this." Oh, you know, he's I remember that. Um, there were things like that um, that really irked him, um, particularly things that Williams said, um, because you know those two had a, a running tip for years um, after um, you know after the World Series and. Uh, or the blown World Series, I should say, and uh, Chilling wanted him traded, and there are uh, press accounts that say that, and he denied that. Um, and of course, Williams was traded. Um, but you know, um, for people who don't know, you talk about the blown World Series. What were what were some of the impressions you got? I mean, a lot. I remember I was a junior in high school, you know, right there, and and he takes Roger Mason out, right, and he goes with Mitch Williams. Uh, Jim Fergosi does. Uh, right. Guys in the clubhouse, like, how how did they feel about that switch? Did they feel like, hey, let's ride with Mitch? Well, the press account at the time said, you know, what you expect them to say. Uh, this is the way we went the season. He was our guy in the bullpen. Um, and we had to go with him. And that was for Gosey's attitude too. I know many fans, including myself said after Mason got out of the, you know, the eighth inning, why didn't he pitch the ninth? I mean, he, you know, and, and a lot of people knew that his, that William's arm was tired. I mean, it was tired. Um, and there were uh, people like Dykstra after the World Series who said that Williams cost them a ring. You know, they didn't say at the time because they didn't know where his place was on the team. But after he was traded, um, you know, Dykstra came out and said that. There were veiled references to, uh, you know, Williams not, should not have gone out on onto the mound from people like Incavelia. Um So yeah, I mean, there was that opinion. What but, what, what you was know. you you mentioned Dykstra? I know I'm jumping around all over the place. I apologize. You 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 mentioned Dykstra. What was it like to sit down with him and and really and really get into it with him? I mean, you can read the book, but only you were there person to person with that interaction. Dykstra. And I knew this because I knew he was not a good business partner. Dykstra wanted to go in on the book with me. Oh, really? And, and uh, I had, I had, who was it with? I talked to another, uh, another writer who wrote the book Nailed. Um, I forget the guy's name, but I knew from his experience just to stay away from him. And, um, and when you yeah, sat either. down with Lenny, what what year was this? Like, uh... Uh, probably ninety five. Okay. 90. So at this point, uh, he's kind of like on the come up as a uh, right as 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 a business person, but people behind 
uh, the scenes know that that's not true, right? Yeah, very definitely. He had a car wash business he was trying to get into. In California, right? No, no, that was here. Oh, it was? Okay. His brother started it in California, but he tried to have a chain here in the Philadelphia area, and it just didn't work. Uh, and then he got into day trading and then he got into the stock, uh, you know, the, the stock, I guess the junk bond dealing, um, and then just went downhill. But there were, there were really, uh, with Dijkstra, I also interviewed him after his career had ended and, um, you know, he was on the way down, so to speak. I mean, things were failing for him. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to go in on the book with me. But I, I want to get back to the, the wild thing. Uh, yeah, the yeah. Thing. Uh, you know, it's easy in hindsight to be critical of those moves. Uh, but I, I have to, you know, honor what a lot of managers think. And, you know, what they say is, look, it didn't work out. So it was the wrong move. We don't know that at the time. And yeah. if it had worked out, then the manager's a genius. I mean, there there are some moves I would not have made yesterday. That <laughs> Dude, that's a great point, made. Bill. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had the advantage of hindsight. Well, you don't know that at the time. Yeah. So. And that's how those guys, I mean, it's kind of like the man in the arena, right? Like you're, you're in there, like you don't know what it's like to be a manager to make those decisions. Even if you're around the game every day, you don't know what it's like until you're actually call, calling those shots. You know, you got to respect guys. You really do because it's it's very difficult to discipline yourself a lot of times when there's so many people talking at you and, you know, your your job is on the line. I want to talk to you about Fergosi. We're talking about the guy making those those managerial uh, moves, right, uh, in the World Series and the playoffs all season long. How was he able to manage this group? Because it takes a special coach to be able, it's one thing to be a player's coach like a Barry Switzer, and you turn your head and it's like completely law, complete lawlessness. But he found a way to win with these guys. What was the magic potion there? Darren Dalton. I mean, Darren Dalton was, in my estimation, uh, I mean, I can't speak for the night. I started following the Phillies in 1964. You know that story. Up by six and a half games with yeah. 12 left to play, dropped 10 in a row to gift wrap the pennant for the Cardinals. Uh, so, you know, Murphy's law is in effect with me whenever the Phillies step on the field. Uh, you know, and it's very difficult. I mean, yeah. You know, it's very, uh, yeah. I, 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 as you get older, right, you're like, why do I even bother? Why am I bothering well, with this? You know, there's only one team I've, I've lived and died with my entire life, and it's the Phillies. I mean, I'm starting to write about the Eagles now because you can't live in this city without being a football fan. Yeah. It's a football city. But, you know, the Phillies have been, and you know, they, 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 I'm spent emotionally after every season, particularly the last three that they put me through. And now, you know, I'm, I'm ready to change my wardrobe from the Phillies spirit wear to the Eagles spirit wear. And then, you know, they get the third wild card. So it's like, yeah, damn you guys, you know, it, it just, it's a dead horse. Quit beating it. Let's die. All right. Yeah. And, and now they're winning. They can't lose. And there's a part, big part of me that's pissed off at them because they put me through such turmoil. Yeah. I mean, particularly in the last three Septembers, 
and now they're doing this. So you know what? I take a completely different attitude this postseason. They were never expected to be here. And I'm not saying they don't belong here. Yeah, they belong here. But, you know, again, I expect them to lose. So anything they do is like a positive. Um, you know, and that may sound terrible, but. No, I'm hey, with you. It's kind of, I, I, I hear you. It's, le- it's, called, it's called learned behavior. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, but ba- but back to back to Darren Dalton, right? Yeah. That's Dalton who. Was, yeah, I've yeah, done. Yeah. I've done. I'm working here in uh, in Texas, and call. I call some games for ESPN, and uh, I'll work with Pat Combs, and uh, he. That's the first the first player out of his mouth when he talks about the '93 Phils was is Darren Dalton, like he was the he kept. He was the governor of, of that squad. You know, he had his own stuff that he did, but he, I guess, you know better than me, was able to keep everybody in line and on track, I guess you would say. No, absolutely. And, you know, Fergosi said time and again throughout that season, you know, I don't have to worry about discipline in the clubhouse. The players take care of it. And Fergosi was a veteran's manager. I mean, it's like, let them go out and play. You know, he, he makes the, the moves, puts them in a position to win, but he doesn't have to police the clubhouse because Dalton was the lead dog. And believe me, no one else, because all those other guys were acquired through trades. Dalton had been there the longest. He had played with Carlton and Schmidt. He knew what it was like to be on a at least a pennant winner, and he knew what was expected. So when Dalton said something, and he knew exactly how to put it, he knew when to go in the clubhouse and say no popping off to the press, you know, no bragging. Uh, when they swept the, the um, you know, the uh, Atlanta in a critical series in, in August. Yeah. But he also went to call people out in the press. I mean, you know, there was a period there in late June, early July of 1993 where – Two guys they were really, really counting on. Green and Schilling just were terrible. Talking and about Tommy Green and Kurt Schilling. They're both 26 years old at the time. And, they're, and, yeah. and Dalton goes to the press and he says, I think we got two young pitchers in this clubhouse who are more worried about their own stats and making the all-star team than they are the team. And that's the problem, and these guys better wise up. And Schilling even had the one thing Schilling said, yeah, that happened and I need to do. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, kudos for him. He finally admits that he did something wrong, but um Dalton was that kind of guy and everybody respected him. You know, Dykstra was a leader by example. And Dykstra, you know, as much as he was a nutcase, right, you couldn't really argue with his play on the field. No. He was he's a red light player. When yeah. when, when when the red light's on, he performed. But he he, he was not a leader. Uh, Cross again, same old way. I mean, you know, leader by example, but he 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 played this kind of hillbilly image to the hilt and was a funny guy. You know, no one's going to listen to Williams. Um, uh, Incavilia and Hollins were called the enforcers because if there was a problem, you know, physically they would do something about it in the clubhouse. 
Um, but Dalton was the hands-down leader. He was what made that club go. Was this? And you've covered baseball for a long time. Was this club exceptional when you talk about their off-the-field escapades, like when they were on the road? Was this, or, or were they just a run-of-the-mill team that liked to have fun and they won? Well, I mean, you know, the the difference is um, <laughs> before television uh, started covering the game and and the the press, you know, now. Uh, had a real challenge because they had to get more intrusive because fans could see what's happening in the game. They don't need a carbon copy reporting of what happened. Um, and so, you know, we had the growth of the chipmunk era writers in the 1960s, and we had a bunch of them here in the city of Philadelphia. Well, what are the chipmunk writers? Chipmunk writers are guys who they became very intrusive. They started asking personal questions. Ah, uh, like, 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 like that code, the old writer's code, like off the field, you don't see anything. These guys started to, exactly. yeah, okay. Dick Young was the, the godfather of those writers. But here in Philadelphia, we had Larry Merchant, we had Bill Conlon, we had Stan Hockman, all those were chipmunk writers. And <laughs> what they did is they used race. They used to bait Dick Allen uh, with the race card to try to sensationalize things when the Phillies weren't winning. But, um, you know, now we go back. I mean, Jim Bouton was the first guy to really open all this stuff up as far as the player is concerned with ball four. Yeah. Uh, he finds out that Babe Ruth had these orgies and, uh, you know, he's sitting on his bed crying because after a night of sexual gymnastics, he can't service these two young women that are, you know, on either side of him. Uh, it, 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 baseball was always wild. It was always wild. The players were out, always out of control. It's just that we know about it, and we'll, now we know about it. And it's one of the things about this team is that they were throwbacks. You know, th- that's the way players acted. You know, that, that's, and that's why people loved them. You know, at, at a time when Parisian salaries were out of control, these guys had you know, weren't making as much money as some of the glamour boys on the Atlanta Braves and the Toronto Blue Jays, you know, guys who didn't want to go all out because they didn't want to get hurt because they, you know, were playing for the next contract, the next free agent contract. Phillies weren't like that. Yeah, you weren't going to, that, that wasn't going to, and a guy like Dutch Dalton wasn't going to allow it, right? That's right. It's just, and, and one of the unwritten rules was you play hurt. And we don't care. You play hurt. Another unwritten rule, rule was don't mope. If you go for 0 for 4, but we win, you better not mope. And that's the name of the book, just so people know. Macho Row, the 1993 Phillies and Baseball's Unwritten Rules. Um, yeah, so that's interesting, the don't mope. Yeah, I mean, there was a, an incident there where Dave Hollins went 0 for 4. I think he's got a golden sombrero in a game, and he's moping on the bus. And Dalton says, "What you know? What's wrong with you?" And he just says, "Leave me alone, right?" Um, well, the next day in the clubhouse, Dalton comes up to him and says, "Are you doing better today?" And Holland says, "Yeah." And he says, "Good, because I was going to pound the crap out of you. You don't <laughs> move when we win. That's your problem. Take it outside. We don't want to see it." How, how did those guys and, treat sports? Oh, go ahead, finish up. I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off. Dalton would do it. I mean, Dalton would do it. 
Were there ever physical altercations that you you heard about in the clubhouse that like the buck stopped with with this particular moment? Um, I can't say I've had, but I, I have heard about a specific one. But can you share? There were, it? Guys, there were guys who said to me, "If that needed to be done, Dutch would be the first guy to do it," and they knew it. They knew it. Was how did they treat writers? Um, back then in the locker room, like, <laughs> how, how were they? Cause I heard, I've heard, uh, not great things. Well, you know, and that's what gets me. I mean, the first thing though, everybody, but Dalton, Dalton took the heat, uh, exception Williams after he gave up the Joe Carter home run, he sat by his locker and took all the guff from the press. But Dalton was consistent. He was in front of his locker and took questions year round. All the rest of them, as soon as the game was over, they all beat it in the trainer's room because you couldn't go in there. Yeah. And they sat there. They sat there until the clubhouse was clear. And then they Well, they're out. just sitting there drinking beers, right? Yeah. They didn't want anything to do with the press. They really didn't. And that was the biggest joke. You know, right? When those guys, when they retire, you see Crock now, who's, you know, he's just he's, he's now he's getting national games. Yeah, you got Crook, you got Williams that went that way. You got Schilling. You got all these guys that went into that field, and that's the biggest joke of all. You know, um, but I guess you know, kudos to them. They learn how to make a living out off of it. Was there will there ever be another team like this? Do you think? I mean, this is the last of the Mohicans as far as a group of guys like this. I don't know. I mean, you had the, what the two thousand and four uh, Red Sox. Red Sox. Yeah, yeah. Bob like the. In fact, my kid, my middle son, who's now twenty six years old, he wasn't around for nineteen ninety three, but he fell in love with the Red Sox because they were that kind of team. You know, I, I think you're going to find these teams creep up. Um, you know, not with the steroids, but the the kind of no holds barred, uh, on you know play by the code, um, you know gangbuster mentality. Yeah, you see them creep up, not that often, but when they do, they really are entertaining, and that's what they are. They're entertainers. But you know, what- that's uh, that's it. At the end of the day, they're entertainers. Was there anything about this group? Uh- that, that surprised you because you knew it, it a lot going in and you obviously like all bets are off when you talk about a group of dudes like this. Was there anything that, that, that shocked you in your research? Um, well, I knew this, this story had legs. I mean, I, I wanted to write this. I wanted to write this book. I guess in the late 1990s, but I, I knew about the steroid stuff. Um, and I just let it play out because I couldn't go making accusations without any documentation until the Mitchell report came out. So I waited. I mean, I waited on this book. Uh, I didn't know how extensive it was. Um, you know, I was a little surprised by that. Um, but that's about it. I mean, it was very clear during during that season that these were guys who played by the code. Uh, you know, their antics were, you know, were, were talked about. I mean, you could 
if you went down to a particular bar in Maniunk, you know, you'd run into these guys and you'd see them in action. Uh, they were so beloved that they would, uh, one of the patients buy them a drink. Well, you know, they would buy that patron a drink. Yeah. And they really worked for the fans. They really worked. And I saw that during that season. Um, and that was very, very refreshing. What was Veteran um, Stadium like during that during that season? Because John Smoltz talked about it uh, during the broadcast of the Braves and the Phillies in the playoffs, right? And he he just said it was. It's always interesting to hear another player. He said it was it was scary to go play at, at the Vet in the in October, especially. Well, um, imagine the Roman Coliseum and the Christians being led to uh, fed to the line. Okay, Philly Lions, and uh, you know I just heard on uh, WIP this morning a uh, story of a football player who came in as a Washington Redskins. He grew up in the area, and they're coming in on a bus, and they're little kids that are flipping the birds at them. Realistic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Look, I got it. I I I understand that mentality. Uh, but I learned at a very early age from an uncle of mine who played in major in the major leagues. You don't boo because the guy is trying as hard as he can. It's not, you know, he's not trying to screw up, you know. But I understand Philadelphia fans were a blue-collar city. So when the Braves came in here, man, they got the, they got the golden raspberry treatment. And, yeah, I mean, we hate them. We hate them. We hate particularly the New York Mets, but there's enough hate left around to, to go around. Great, <laughs> right? Yeah, there's enough for sure. Not, it's not going to be much better when they come in here on Friday night. We don't like them. I mean, they they dominated the the 1990s, and uh, you know it's no fun when you go and get your head handed to you uh, down in Atlanta. And then once in a while, they've done that to us here yeah. in our out. So, yeah, I mean, we get them back. What, when you looking back, you get, there's, there were different personalities too. Like how did, how does a guy like Lenny Dykstra coexist with a guy like Milt Thompson? Is there, is there a relationship there? Is there, or does it stop at mutual respect? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I was really, um, uh, surprised about just following the Phillies over all these years. Um, you know, there's certain relationships that you just think, well, they're tight. You know, these guys are tight like Schmidt and Rose. Yeah. Those guys weren't. Tall. They didn't, when, when the game was over, they went their separate ways on the field, different, different situations, but completely different personalities, just like Dykstra and Milt Thompson. There, there was mutual respect. Um, but you know, they're not the kind of guys that are going to hang out together. They're just not. What? Um, is... And there were a lot of guys like that on that team. I mean, um, uh, soccer, you know, altar boy. You yeah. Know, that's what he, um, he, uh, he didn't hang out with the, the, the guys on Macho Row. I mean, Macho Row was a very, very tight click. And, and the rest of the players were background to them. Montero was what made that team go. 
Did they, you know? We know some of the guys took steroids. Was there rumors about guys taking like like speed before games? I know, you know, there were, you talk to guys from back in the day, and there's you talk about greenies, and there's just like open access. Were, were the Phillies still because they were a lot of late nights? Were they using that to stay sharp? Yeah, I mean, those guys, at least in Montero, I mean, Crux talks about it all the time. Uh, you know, they they stayed overnight in the clubhouse. They had wiffle ball tournaments with the you know, some of the clubhouse, uh, staff, uh, you know, they, they, uh, yes. I mean, yes, that, that still goes on. Um, you know, I mean, drugs have always been a part of baseball, whether you're talking about diet pills, you know, where they want to take off weight or greenies, uh, in the Phillies clubhouse, it's no secret. I mean, Jeff Cooper made this statement years ago. Um, you know, when he was there, there was a big, a big jar of greenies in the corner and people would just, you take a handful of them and, you know, like candy. Um, there's no secret about that, but the steroid thing was, you know, was off the charts. Um, um you're a guy who I really respect and I, and we just, t- I, I'd be remiss if I didn't, uh, ask you about this and we'll, we'll let you go here in a little bit, but we mentioned Pete Rose. Uh, you know, what is your take on Pete Rose and, and, and the Hall of Fame? Uh, and then I want to, and I also two-prong question, is, is Pete Rose a bad guy? Um, I've, I've run the gamut with Pete Rose. I mean, I, when, I, <laughs> Pete Rose was betting on baseball when he was with the Phillies. I mean, he'd have a member of the, well, I'm not going to mention, but the news, the, the you know the the broadcasters going places bet for him, um, and and this guy would do so on a payphone in the clubhouse. That's why they took the payphone out. <laughs> uh, but so we knew that he bet. The issue was, did he bet on baseball? And that was always the question. In 1989. You know, I kind of said, well, I finally got caught. I wasn't, I didn't really know if he bet on baseball, but, you know, we, everyone knew he bet. He bet on, heavily on sports. And I just said, well, I finally got caught. Um, I hope he admits it because then there will be forgiveness. But that was his problem. He never admitted until much too late, and that was it. So in, in the immediate fallout of this, my feeling towards him was, yes, he belongs in the Hall of Fame. I hope he admits it. You know, everyone gets a second chance and he'll get there. But the way he led his life afterwards, I mean, going on a wrestling circuit and doing, you know, crazy yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and then not admitting for years and trying to, you know, trade on his name. I mean, he's got a gambling problem and, you know, the last thing you want to do is go and live in Las Vegas when you have that kind of problem. I just, he doesn't conduct himself like a Hall of Famer. No, and even, not. and just most recently when he came back and that team was honored and he's just, he, he, <laughs> I mean, either he doesn't care or he doesn't have it in him, you know? Yeah, I, I don't think he cares. And to be honest with you, I don't think you're going to be seeing him around Philadelphia too much anymore. But, because uh, people are just fed up. I mean, he's a, he's a very tragic, lost soul and uh and yet when he was a player and the the uh the very few 
interactions I've had with him. He's quick with quip. He's lovable. Um, had he not done this, he would have been a great ambassador for the game. But that's that's not it. And, you know, the tragedy of this is, that, you know, he's like the old-time baseball player because these guys are lost after the game is over. Think about it. Everything is done for you when you play Major League Baseball. Your your hotel arrangements, your plane uh, flight schedule, you, you don't even have to carry your bags to your – everything is done for you. You're given things because the fans love you. You know, um, you don't have to pay for anything. Uh, and honestly, and all- Bill, that's if you're an average player. If you're a guy like Pete Rose – you, you, it's a, you know, your way is paved in the world. That's right. And, and, you know, once that's all gone, it's gone. And a lot of guys cannot make the adjustment. So what they try to do is they gamble or, I mean, I, I compare Rose and Dykstra as the same kind of competitive personality that could not get their lives together after baseball ended. They just couldn't. If they could play forever, they would have, and they would have been great. But to take that kind of cutthroat competition out into the real world, there are very few avenues for that. Dykstra found it in finance. I mean, the Dykstra story is amazing. He was on the top of the at the top of the mountain. I mean, Bernard yep. Goldberg visits him and does that story. It was like, everybody was like, whoa. You know, like Lenny yep. Dykstra is... He's legitimately this incredibly shrewd business guy, and that wasn't the case. Yep. And and Rose, you know, did himself in with gambling. That was that was Rose's finances and, um, you know, Dyser's finances, but the equivalent for Rose. And it's sad. I mean, it's really sad. So to answer your question, no, I, I don't think Pete Rose belongs in the Hall of Fame. I wouldn't want to see him there. Uh, and yet at the same time, there are a lot of guys that don't belong in the Hall of Fame who are there. What about, uh, how many people did you have to talk to for this book? Oh, damn. I don't know. I think I got it in the back of the book. I have a list of all the people I've interviewed. Ballpark it. I don't know. Um, My regret is I didn't get more people who weren't Phillies, but I think I interviewed just about everybody on the team. Um, You know, so I don't know, about 20, maybe two dozen, something like that. How how labor intensive is a is a book like this? Well, that book because I, I had I had to wait on it. I had to let the story develop. So that we're talking about that book was in the work for about I don't know eight maybe ten years. Um, I had to wait on that book. And the crazy thing about that book that book came out in 2017, and a lot of that manuscript was already written like four or five years before. I was just waiting for the steer, the Mitchell report to break. Um, and, and because of that, I had written, I was working on two other books that also ended up coming out in 2017 suicide squeeze, which was about Taylor Hooten and Rob Garibaldi. And I was trying to get Dick, Dick Allen in the hall of fame as part of the Dick Allen for hall of fame committee. And they, you know, Mark Arfogno, you know, pretty much, tricked me into writing a full-length biography on Dick Allen. <laughs> so that all three of those books came out uh, in 2017. Not one of them got nominated for the, uh, the Tasty Award, but, you know, that's how it breaks them. How, how, were you surprised by the success of the Macho Row book? 
I still am. I think of, of all the baseball books I've ever written, uh, it's definitely not the best. The best book I wrote was Jackie and Campy. Hands down, that's the best. About Jackie seen. Robinson and Al Camp, uh, Campana. That, that, that missed the Casey Award by one stinking vote. Um, to um, uh, Kosha Kennedy's book on Pete Rose. Um, but I'll never come close And what to award that is this? Casey Award. It's Major League Baseball, Spitball Magazine. Okay. Casey Award and Seymour Medal are the two top awards for baseball writers. And you're still um, you're still chasing them. Here we are talking about Rose and Dykstra, and, and right, <laughs> you're still getting after it in your own right. Well, yeah, I mean, I think. Look, I go with university presses. I I don't have like a lot of these guys. You know, you talk about Tom Verducci, Howard Bryant. These guys, they got a network. Yeah, they got. They wrote for Sports Illustrated. I'm a history professor. Okay. Yeah. They already have the network, and I'm not. I don't kiss ass. Yeah. I mean, I think it is. I'm not going to kiss ass. There's a lot of writers out there that kiss ass for the 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 awards. Well, it's just so, like an Oscar. You got to go on the circuit, right? You got to run around and you know press the flesh. You, you got, but you also got to get an agent. You also have to belong to Saber. You also have to um, have a trade publisher, and I don't have any of those things. So. Uh, you know, yes, I would like because I think I have written works that are very deserving. I think that, um, uh, and now I'm probably jinxing myself. And never <laughs> get, get, uh, no, it, it, at some point you want to say, yeah, I would like that recognition. Because um, that's, you know, that's not why I write. I mean, let's, let's make that clear. That's not why I write. Of course. Not yeah. why I have book. Well, you're, you're, yeah. it's clear it comes through in your work. That's obviously not, you know, I mean, it's a, it takes, and that's why I wanted to t- talk with you because you, you need to have a passion for these topics if you're going to tackle them. There's no two ways about it. Or you either, either way, or you won't finish or you won't care enough to be accurate. Um, well, and yeah, I mean, you can't get you, this you stuff gotta, wrong. You got to be your own editor when you do this. I mean, um, there's a process you go through when you write. And I am very passionate about my writing. I mean, it's, it's the one thing in life I can control. And, you know, in the end, I don't really give a damn about the reviews. There's a lot of pettiness out there. Um, and, and a lot of writers who are frankly jealous. So, you know, they, they will make some very petty remarks. Well, I, I, can't, I can't judge my writing on that, Okay. Uh, and I make my own edits. I know when I'm ready to, to go out with the book. And, um, you know, it's got to make my cut. And I have very high standards. Uh, passion is a very important part of it. I'm getting more into books that I want to tell the human side. I don't think that I have done that as well as I could in the past. Um, I want to tell. I'm working on a book about Super Bill Bradley. Yeah. Who uh, in the Eagles, and he's got just a fascinating story. What's the number like, one thing about Bill Bradley? Because you and I talked about this offline, um, the, and without giving it, you know, much, anything away, really. But what's the number one thing that that draws you to a guy like him? If something that jumps out, and you're like, I gotta do, I gotta capture this guy. Um, he, there's only two two athletes, and he's one of them that I met that were 
completely without pretense to the point where they were so naive they didn't even they don't even realize how much they mean to the fans. Bill is one, and Tug McGraw is the other. And I got I got I it's been a privilege and an honor to get to know both of those as friends. I mean, they have there in in sports, and and particularly you know here in Philadelphia, they were my closest friends who were athletes. The title of that book that I'm writing on Bradley is called Blue-Eyed Soul Brother, Super Bill Bradley, Texas Football and the Transformation of the NFL. And he's called, he was given the name Blue-Eyed Soul Brother uh, by Jerry Levias, who played for the Houston Oilers. And uh, they met each other. Jerry Levias is an African-American and Bradley is white. And they met each other at the Big 33 game oh, wow. in summer of 1965. It's a very good book written about the two of them. It's called Kids Got It Right by Jim Dent. But oh, wow, tells, Jim Dent. I love, yeah. Yeah, that, that only tells the high school part of Bradley's story. I mean, there's much more to his story, much more to his story. And I do, I do want to tell it. But um, I, I think Bradley coming out of Texas, uh, coming out of the segregated South, um, could be as liberal as he uh, is and was, uh, is highly exceptional, uh, that he judges people on character rather than who they are or what they have. Um, and he's got a fun, wild side to him. <laughs> he, was, he was mistaken uh, I think he was mistaken. He was mistaken. The NFL as a guy who was highly irresponsible because of his relationship with Tim Rosovich, who, you know, was a cr- crazy man. I mean, the guy used to set himself on fire. He used to eat black, a lot of other kind of stupid things, uh, that he did. Um, and he, the Eagles traded him away and they did, they didn't, they broke up that friendship, but, uh, did they trade, Bradley, they trade him away cause you had to get, you know, he was too much. Well, he was too much. He was also holding out, but okay. he was, he was at limelight. What Bradley says, and this is another thing I just love about the man. He, he's got it in perspective. He said, I'm an entertainer and I act when I played football, I acted in a theater in the round. You want the heroes? You talk to my, um, you talk to my friends who went to Vietnam and didn't come back or came back with PTSD or missing limbs. Those are the real heroes. I mean, he, and he is so sincere when, wow. he and I met some of his friends who came back from Vietnam and their stories are amazing. It's then that's the concept of just knowing what's important and having perspective and that, that not yeah. many great athletes have. That's right. Tim Rosovich, by the way, an intri- I remember him being an actor too, right? Yeah, he was. I mean, he was a stunt guy. I think that's one of the reasons he used to set himself on fire and eat glass. But he did, he did have a moderately successful TV series, a short-lived series. I forget the name of it. Yeah, but he was in a bunch of movies too. I think in TV shows, like a like a B list actor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, well, anything, anything else, Bill? I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I this has been a, a just a really compelling conversation for me. Well, thank you. I I. I do appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, no, I mean, Macho Row continues to sell. 
Um, you know, I, I'm slowly moving over to football, uh, and hopefully the Bradley book will do as well. And the book will uh, also do as well as, you know, cause I'm working on two of these things at the same time as a book I'm writing about the Philadelphia Eagles from 19 teams from 1969 to 1983. It's titled Ooh. schools have landed how Philadelphia rose from NFL doormat to Super Bowl content. I've interviewed just about all the principals. Uh, for me, oh, I've, I've known for some time, uh, and I got a couple of great lengthy interviews from him. Uh, Harold Carmichael, I interviewed at length. I interviewed um, Bill Berge at length. There is so much interesting stuff around that, you know, and like the, the Leonard Toes era. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that was almost, they tried to make that a movie, the Leonard Toes story. I'm sure, you know, I, I mean, did, yeah. I that, although the Eagles are, are becoming one of these uh, iconoclastic kind of culture movements. If you look at, you know, all the, there have been several Eagles movies done from Silver Linings, Playbook yeah. to Invincible. To the what is it called? The garbage picking trash can. Uh, oh yeah, Tony Danza, whatever. And I mean, there's there's yeah. three eagles out there. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if there's there's another one. All right. Well, I thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, Pete. Thanks for your interest, man, and and good luck. If you want to talk to Bradley anytime, let me know. I, I probably will. I probably will. Okay. Take care. All right. Take care, buddy. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. We are Rogue Media Sports.